Hello and welcome to the very, very, very first instalment of the Daily Delphi. Today our subject is... 300 or more historically accurate. Today I am lucky enough to have the company of one Mr Gent, teacher at Stafford School uh, of both classics and English literature and the perfect brain to pick about all things Thermopylae. But before we let him take the stage, I think I will give you a brief overview of the events leading up to Thermopylae, because there is a lot of context which uh, can be overlooked and is definitely overlooked in the film which many people may be familiar with. So, good place to start. Xerxes coming over continuing his dead father Darius' wishes, taking Thrace, Macedon, and sending heralds to the remaining city-states or polis, all of whom surrender other than Athens and Sparta, who say emphatic no's, leading to the rather infamous scene in 300 uh, where heralds are kicked down to the well. Now, 490 BC, we have the Battle of Marathon, an equally important uh, military conflict between uh, a Greek force and a Persian force with um, a similar manner of imbalance between forces. 2.5 to 1 Persian forces to ancient Greek forces. But the Greeks win somehow, as I will, as we will return to in a bit. So Xerxes goes off, he recuperates and returns with a force of as Herodotus writes, 1.4 million Persians. We actually think it's probably closer to about 250,000. But don't let that uh, hyperbole of size distract from the actual magnitude of imbalance between them, because even though 250,000 is significantly uh, smaller than 1.4 million, it is also significantly larger than the 7,000 Greeks that they were supposedly up against. 300 of whom were Leonidas' famous Spartans, or they could spare given they were still worried about a slave revolt at home. At the same time, we've got a naval battle going on. We've got 271 of Athens' famous triremes against 1,207 Persian ships. Again, considerable imbalance in, in, in the, the size of each force, but what we must uh, keep in the back of our minds as we do discuss this, is that a third of those Persian ships were destroyed. And it was also a, sort of a, more of a conglomeration than, than a, a specifically military fleet. You have all sorts of passenger ships, trade, uh, trade ships, cargo ships, as well as the more uh, conflict-oriented sea craft. Now, returning back to land, Xerxes sends a spy to see what's happening over at Thermopylae, where the Spartans and the, the rest of the Greek force have wedged themselves in between the, 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 the pass, as it were, only a few men across in order to both maximise their phalanx formation and also their, their, their dwindling numbers in comparison to the Persian force. And the spy reports quite, uh, sorry, observes rather quite uh, curiously that the Greek force, and the Spartans in particular, are fixing their hair nude. Um, 
certainly not what the Persians were expecting. I think we we Aryas probably prick up in the same way. It's um, but it was custom. But Xerxes, of course, doesn't know this, and so he thinks it's a sign of weakness. And so, skipping out a little bit so that you don't have to listen to my voice for as long, the battle commences. And for the first two days, it almost looks like the Greeks were going to do it. Mr. Gent, hello and welcome. How is this even possible? I think the important thing is to remember the reason that the Greeks won the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC because the difference between the topography of Greece and the Persian Empire is the Persian Empire is very open and wide and spacious. It's full of plains and deserts and so on. So you can have lots of light-armoured infantry who can manoeuvre and run around and outflank. And that's also typical of having a largely conscript force or a force full of slaves where uh, the equipment is so low uh, uh, due to their status. Um, so, and for, in 490 BC, at the Battle of Marathon, the Athenians and, and their allies are able to be very, very heavily armoured because they um, are largely citizens. There's the funding for their armour. They have, the topography of Greece means that they are enclosed in most of their battles because Greece is so mountainous and rugged and arid, uh, meaning that so often uh, it's the heavily armoured troops that win the day. So when you have shock troops that are heavily armoured because they're used to the Greek topography facing a largely conscript, lightly armoured force that is not used to such um, such a, a foe as, as the Greeks, uh, combined with the fact that the, the Persians were rapidly trying to unload on the beaches of Marathon, you have uh, a pretty concisive victory. Um, the same is true of Thermopylae in that the Spartans are very, very heavily armoured compared to their oppositions. And this is not something the Persians are well versed in. The topography, again, is made to work for the Spartans because they can wedge themselves between the hot gates at Thermopylae. Uh, they can go 12 deep. They can cover each other with their shields. They have armour all over their bodies. Uh, and so from an equipment point of view, they are far better prepared and they are far more used to the Persians than the Persians are to them in terms of the equipment they're facing. The training is obviously the other more notable and more famous aspect that the Spartans will have had, although that's not true necessarily of their allies. The Spartan boys from a very young age, perhaps 11, perhaps 8, would have been taken off uh, to be schooled um, in the agogi, where they would basically be trained in a number of different academic fields, um, such as perhaps dancing and music, um, but all of these would flow into war. So any poem they learned was a war poem, any dance they did was a, a mock formation, any uh, songs they learned were songs that they would sing while they were marching, and they fought and fought and fought and fought all the way until they were a member of a sestitia and member of a barracks, and then they fought and fought and fought all the way until they were allowed to retire, barely allowed to spend time with their wives, their families. They trained every day for battle for approximately 30 years. So training and equipment um, meant that the Spartans were obviously going to be able to fight in a superior way when it came to man-to-man -to -man combat as it did at the Hot Gates. Indeed, and I suppose external to Thermopylae, the actual the naval battle that was going at the same time, you had the storms that had scattered the, the Persian fleet, uh, in the same way that the army was slightly uh, less equipped than, than, uh, than, the, than the Athenians and the Spartans, which were funded by the, the uh, silver mines, of course. Then, day two, after all, is sort of looking well against all the odds, there is a traitor in the camp, 
and we hear uh, via Herodotus of Ephialtes and two others uh, sort of giving the Persians by night uh, the back door. Now, Mr. Jen, I was wondering whether you think, uh, as so much of this is, is seen as potential propaganda, and there is a belief that it was only a matter of time until Persian scouts found this back door to uh, Thermopylae, as it were, which was still guarded by 100, 100 troops, but not enough uh, to sort of face off against quite a substantial Persian force. Was this invention, or do you believe this really happened? Yes, perhaps we'll never know. I suppose one has to analyse Herodotus to believe anything that we're really reading about the Battle of Thermopylae, and Herodotus uh, has many accuracies, he has many faults, he invents monsters and places and people that never existed. But at the same time, you feel like this is so within the realms of human experience, so many people would know about this event that it would be quite hard for him to just make it up. Equally, I think one could also argue it doesn't matter that much in the sense that the casualties against the Persians weren't really that high. There was a delay of time that was significant, but the Spartans just weren't killing that many Persians. I think that's an exaggerated uh, piece of propaganda That if we were going to talk about propaganda. Um, and so, yes, they found the goat path. Yes, perhaps Ephialtes took them there, and I do believe that is the case for the reasons I've stated. However, had that goat path not have been found, I do feel like the Spartans and their allies were at breaking point nonetheless anyway. I see. As, as is sort of illustrated by the fact that he told most of his force to flee after this occurred and uh, sort of stayed in order to allow the rest of his force to get home and to assist with the Athenian evacuation, uh, evacuation which would have been pivotal in the end. But for all the, their fighting, all the training, all the equipment, they still lose based on pure numbers. Leonidas is crucified as an example. And at sea, things get just as bad. But... The upside is many of them retreat, uh, many of the triremes get back in, in one piece to assist with the evacuation, which is in the end successful, which means that by the time Athens is raised, as Xerxes wishes, it's almost empty, bar a few sort of stubborn elders, as it were, which I suppose begs the question, was it that much of a victory? Was he really uh, sort of vandalising a city, or was its heart elsewhere after the evacuation? Now... Why, why does this matter within the context of the sort of Persian v. Greek uh, wars at this, at this point? I think you could say Thermopylae itself matters purely significantly. Um, I feel like in military terms, although this is not the fashionable or the fun opinion, um, it, was a, it was a loss. The Persians were able to steam on through with many of their forces still intact, although they were obviously delayed and they were probably had their pride wounded. And they were able to, to do what they wanted to do, which was raise Athens to the ground. One must remember this is all a retaliation against um, the Ionian settlements uh, rising up and rebelling at, at the behest and with the help of the Athenians. So that is accomplished. And so from a Persian point of view, they could say we have suffered disproportionate losses, but we have, a, we have a, achieved a great deal of our target. In terms of the significance from the Greeks, one must also remember that the threads which are going to lead to the most significant advances in Western civilization that we can owe to Athens are still intact. We have not got that many years until we start to see the democracy of Pericles uh, and the um, philosophies of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. And these threads started long before with Pythagoras um, in terms of philosophy and science and with Solon when it comes to democracy. Uh, the fact that the evacuation to Euboea and the evacuation just onto general ships was, success, uh, was significant was because that successfully preserved the threads that were going to lead to the thriving of Athens in its golden age. 
and indeed it did it did thrive again and for all the raising that the Persians did Pericles did go and build the Parthenon and shape most of the image we have of Athens today now one year later they go and win decisively at Plataea a united sort of Greek force against uh, Persians once more and this is sort of uh, accredited to Themistocles victory at Salamis as it's referenced in Byron's House of Greece um, and this is another thing that I wondered uh, your, your opinions on if it wasn't Herodotus could it have been Themistocles that doctored up this sort of uh, propaganda for the sake of uniting his troops and in that sense is it a victory even though uh, in, a military, in military terms they lost the fact that it, it instilled enough passion for the rest of the Greeks to come back and win the war after losing the battle, as it were. Yeah, the case is compelling that perhaps mystically exaggerated the Spartan prowess so that Athenians thought if we unite we'll be twice as strong. Uh, but I don't think that's the case due to, to, to conflicting idealisms, and idealisms are often much, much stronger than, than pragmatism. The, qu- the closest uh, parallel that historians often draw in is the Cold War, where although the Americans and the Russians were allied in fighting the Germans... That was secondary in terms of their affections and their feelings towards one another um, to their to idealisms, which then caused the Cold War, communism versus capitalism. And when you've got the Spartan system of two monarchs and the brutality of their education and the the horrors that they inflicted upon people through their military zeal, when you compare that with democracy and all that entails, I think they are too far apart for, for them to ever truly complement each other, as can be particularly seen in, in Pericles' eulogy uh, during the Peloponnesian War. Um, so I think we can view it in the Cold War context. Yes, they can fight side by side, as the Americans and the Russians did, but never a good word would be said about the other when it comes to conflicts of ideologies that people take far more seriously, even to potentially nuclear proportions, as we know from the last century. So you don't believe that if they had won at Thermopylae against all the odds, as a united sort of uh, Greek force, you don't believe that this could have potentially brought the polis together and then helped them resist the Macedons and the Romans? I'm afraid not. I think they had so many opportunities to unify, so many reasons to unify, and none of them were sufficient compared to not just the ideology of militarism versus democracy or whatever ideological comparison you want to make, but also the profound belief of of liberty, um, which bred, became a breeding ground for the philosophy that would would eventually engender within Athens. Uh, The idea of liberty would never be suspended or given up for the sake of unity unless it was very, very desperate, and even then, very, very rarely. Um, And and the Macedonians really do prove, Philip of Macedon really does prove uh, that the polys will never unite. They view themselves as too disparate, and they view it as a point of pride that they don't unite. Do you think this has this has led to Greece, Greece's more recent political upheaval? The idea that trying to unify after the sort of Greek War of Independence, uh, freeing themselves of the Ottomans, seeing themselves under one label rather than as city-states has made it so hard for Greece politically. I think the, the big political dichotomy they have is the same one that perhaps we sometimes see in Italy and other countries where they don't, they don't just have former glories in terms of military and, and economic power, uh, but their histories are very disparate from how they are now. So you take the example 
um, of Italy and they might look back at their renaissance and say well the great powers were once Florence and Milan and Venice and Rome uh, and now we will have to sit beneath uh, our capital uh, and perhaps that can create a conflict in their minds and Greece might say the same thing that you know we look back at our time that we're revered for we in many ways pioneered so many core aspects of western civilization uh, and now we are a country that is, is perhaps more, no, more, more known for, for struggling economically and, and not really producing uh, the calibre of, of pioneers that we once did. And it's a difficult dichotomy because they look back and they say, well, how do we reclaim this? Well, how do we amplify and replicate the, the scenarios that were there? Well, we do need to be, we, we were in polis. But I don't think they would they would think well we need to return to Polace in order to regain our former glory. I think they would rather think well that was that was a time that's passed and now we're more focused on on the economic argument really. Mr. Gent, that is Thermopylae. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Harry. And so that just about rounds it up for episode one. I hope you enjoyed. Um, there are obviously many more to come. Different subjects from Aristotle and Breaking Bad to the Homeric question and so on and so forth. They'll be differing in length. There'll be uh, some will be me alone. Some will be with the, with the company of more intellectual minds than myself at present, at least. Um, and I look forward to them all, as I hope you do. Um, for now, sadly, that is all we have time for. I look forward to seeing you in the next one. But for now, adieu.